My stepson was not a loser. My son is not a loser. My son, Matthew, is not a loser. Yeah, try telling that to your commander-in-chief, suckers. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day, even during pandemics, even during firestorms out here in California, coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. And first, of course, our thanks to Nicole Sandler for filling in for us for a couple of days last week as we tried to, uh, A, get some rest and clear our brains as we head into the next critical 30 or 60 or 90 or more days. With Election Day now just uh, 56 days away, I believe, but who's counting? Uh, Early and absentee voting, however, gets underway this week in some places. And also, uh, B... We tried to escape the record heat here in Southern California, where a nearby town set a record here in Los Angeles County of 121 degrees over the weekend. Is that right, Desi Doyen? 121 degrees in, what was it, Woodland Hills? It was in Woodland Hills, which is about, Mm. I don't know, 20 miles outside of downtown Los Angeles, a suburb. I know our own uh, Ernie Canning, who who writes at uh, bradblog.com, was out of power for about five hours. He lives right over near there. Which underscores how dangerous it is to have no power during a record heat wave. Oh, yeah, there's that. So uh, we tried to and and largely succeeded escaping the worst of the heat by getting nearer to the somewhat cooler coastline. Yes, many of us here in Los Angeles do not have air conditioning because other than for about, I don't know, two weeks of the year at most, no, no air conditioning is usually needed. Though those two weeks, I think, have begun to stretch a bit, seemingly, each year. It used Uh, to be one or two days, and now it has stretched into weeks and weeks, as climate change has raised global temperatures everywhere. 
And while we escaped the worst of the heat here in Hollywood and thought we were nowhere near the many fires now burning up and down the state, we could not escape them entirely. I was actually stunned to look up at the night sky on Sunday evening, I think it was, to see a literally blood red moon in the sky like I've never seen before. I tweeted a photo if you want to check it out on Twitter at the Brad blog, but the fires were nowhere near us. Uh, but apparently they are bad enough and releasing enough smoke particulates into the atmosphere from elsewhere that Southern California and I'm, I'm guessing Northern California as well saw a moon that looked more like a traffic light. Oh, indeed. Than the actual moon. And in places in Northern California and in Oregon and Colorado where there are big fires, they are blotting out the sun. We were lucky. Um, other Californians less so over the weekend. Helicopters rescued dozens of more people from wildfires on Tuesday as flames chewed through bone-dry California following a scorching Labor Day weekend that saw a dramatic airlift of more than 200 people over the weekend and ended with the state's largest utility here turning off power to 172,000 customers. That's not people, that's customers. So that's uh, families, that's businesses. That was in hopes of trying to prevent still more blazes, according to AP today, all in the midst of a record heat wave out here in the Golden State. Three early morning helicopter flights on Tuesday pulled another 35 people from the Sierra National Forest, the California National Guard announced today. I think that number eventually went up to 52 people in total. Uh, on Tuesday. California has already set a record with 2 million acres burned this year and the worst part of the wildfire season, terrifyingly, is just beginning. That, after the previous record was uh, of uh, 2 million acres, uh, that was uh, previously set just two years ago and included the deadliest wildfire in state history, which you may recall that swept through the community of Paradise killing 85 people at the time. That blaze was started by power lines amid strong winds and tinder-dry conditions. Again, at the time, uh, liability from billions of dollars in claims from that and other fires forced PG&E, that's uh, the Pacific Gas and Electric Utility Company, the largest in the state, to seek bankruptcy protection because they basically weren't taking care of their equipment, which sparked uh, these deadly fires two years ago. To guard against similar new disasters, the company last year began preemptive power shutoffs when fire conditions are exceptionally dangerous, as they were over the holiday weekend and as they still are, even as the broiling heat here in Southern California has abated just a bit today. In Northern California, right now, high and dry winds are expected until Wednesday. More than 14,000 firefighters are battling more than two dozen fires around the state. Two of the three largest blazes in state history are still burning in the San Francisco Bay Area. But as uh, Desi noted, California was not alone. Hurricane force winds and high temperatures kicked up wildfires across parts of the Pacific Northwest over the holiday weekend, burning hundreds of thousands of acres and mostly destroying the small town of Malden in eastern Washington state. In just a few hours. Very, very fast. 
Down here in Southern California, fires are burning in Los Angeles, San Bernardino, and San Diego counties. The U.S. Forest Service on Monday closed all eight national forests here in the region uh, and to uh, shutter decided to shutter campgrounds statewide, which is apparently a good idea given how many campers had to be airlifted out by helicopters over the past several days. Weather conditionings, however, are worsening. And the uh, Randy Moore the with the Forest Service Pacific Southwest region said, we simply do not have enough resources to fully fight and contain every fire. Spokesperson for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, known as CAL FIRE, said it is unnerving to have reached a record for acreage burned so soon in the season. September and October usually are the worst months for fire because vegetation has dried out over the summer months and high warm winds blowing out uh, from the desert known as Santa Ana winds down here in Southern California, Diablo winds up in nor- up in the north. Uh, that's when those winds are more common and the worst fires are more common. So I suspect there will be much more ahead. Um, firefighters currently are, are struggling to corral several major blazes ahead of expected winds on Wednesday. And evacuation orders have been expanding to more mountain communities as the so-called Creek Fire chewed through the Sierra National Forest in central California over the weekend. Forty-five homes, 20 other structures were confirmed destroyed so far in that blaze. Firefighters were working in steep terrain to save the town of uh, tiny town of Shaver Lake from flames that roared down hillsides towards a marina. About 30 houses were destroyed in the remote hamlet of Big Creek. The fire there, according to NBC News, caused three propane tanks totaling 11,000 gallons mm. to explode. According to the longtime chief of the volunteer fire department in the nearby town of Huntington Lake, a lot of the uh, towns around uh, California, these small towns, they have volunteer fire departments. An elementary school also caught fire. The uh, longtime chief there, Chris Donnelly, said firefighters battling the blaze ran out of water on Saturday night. Two plant employees who had been evacuated from Big Creek raced back into the flames to establish a new water supply and to tie it into the hydrant system, according to Donnelly. They went, uh, "Okay, we'll do it for our town, he said, adding it's a a heroic story. Nonetheless, about half the private homes in town burned to the ground, according to resident Toby Waite, who said words cannot even begin to describe the devastation of this community. That fire, which began on Friday, exploded to a massive 135,500 acres by Monday evening in the Sierra Nevada mountains, according to Fresno County Fire Protection District. It was 0% contained. So that's still out of control as these uh, winds start moving in over the next 24 hours. Dan Swain, a climate scientist at UCLA, said the fire was so intense that it had created its own thunderstorms with lightning and wind, but no rain. 
Yes. Is that a thing? Yes. When you have these super intense fires, they loft the heat way up high into the atmosphere, and they actually can create their own weather. And worse, the fire natos can actually send embers up to 10 miles away, starting new fires farther away where firefighters are not staged. Which probably explains why there are so many fires right now popping up across the state. Officials are trying to keep the fire, by the way, that uh, Big Creek fire, I believe, from pushing west towards Yosemite National Park. Yes. Early Tuesday, California National Guard and Navy helicopters rescued 13 people from uh, the China Peak area, another 22 from Lake Edison. After rescue flights were initially thwarted earlier by heavy smoke on what must have been a terrifying Monday night for those who were stranded in the middle of the flames yet couldn't get uh, could not get rescued because there was so much smoke. 214 people were um, uh, airlifted by the National Guard on Saturday. East of San Diego, there's another blaze growing in intensity today. The Valley Fire, as it's called, has already consumed more than 17,000 acres and has destroyed 36 structures. According to CAL FIRE, it remains 0% contained as well. One of the Southern California fires closed mountain roads in Angeles National Forest and forced the evacuation of the historic Mount Wilson Observatory. That's about 40 minutes up the mountain from us here. California, uh, AP notes, has seen 900 wildfires since August 15. Many of them started by an intense series of thousands of lightning strikes in mid-August. There have been eight fire deaths and more than 3,300 structures destroyed so far this year. And we're not even to the worst part of the season. And while AP does not mention it at all, way down near the bottom of NBC's coverage with a record two million acres burned so far this year, with about half of the season still to go, uh, NBC, at least, finally notes, quote, scientists have partly attributed the state's increasingly intense wildfire seasons to climate change, which has made the season longer and hotter and its vegetation more combustible. Well, thank you, NBC, for finally noticing what's going on. Only if you read all the way to the end of the article, however. Yep. You know, do you think it might be useful for the electorate to know such things as we are just 56 days away? From an election with a climate change denier heading up the presidential ticket on the Republican side? I suspect that might matter to voters in the most uh, closely divided, perhaps, uh, state of all. The, uh, the swingiest of swing states, as I call it, North Carolina. Well, they began sending out absentee ballots last Friday. So folks in North Carolina may be voting today in the 2020 presidential election. Now, North Carolina has had its share of climate crisis related disasters over the years, from an increasing number of hurricanes to uh, remember those coal ash pit spills that uh, occurred in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. To, of course, rising sea levels around some of the state's most expensive properties on the coast. Voters in every state in the union should be reminded of the difference between the two major candidates that are running for president with with one Donald Trump, a climate change denier, and the other Joe Biden proposing to spend some two trillion dollars to both combat climate change and create millions of new jobs at a time when our economy really, really needs them right now. New jobs in clean, renewable energy production. And you would think that NBC 
and AP covering these stories in such great detail about these fires that are ravaging the largest state in the nation that they might want to mention, yes, something can be done about it based on how you vote this year. That didn't come up, however. So, uh, yeah, ballots are now on the way to North Carolina and uh, several other battleground states, including Pennsylvania, Michigan and Virginia, are days away now from offering early voting. And speaking of voting, this story this morning uh, reminds me personally of my worst fear about this coming election day. And I've got a lot of them, a lot of fears. (laughs) But this one, just we don't hear people talk about it much, maybe because they're wishing it away. But uh, it's just it's uh, just one reason why you may wish to vote early or by mail this year. Hartford Public Schools in Connecticut postponed their first day of classes on Tuesday. No, not due to COVID, as so many other uh, schools have had to do, but due to a ransomware attack that shut down the entire district's computer system. We talk a lot about problems with the uh, with the U.S. mail service now when it comes to, to vote by mail and about the ease of hacking electronic voting systems and tabulators and electronic poll books. But I have this recurring nightmare, which I'm sure will absolutely not happen, that uh, we may see ransomware attacks launched in key counties on Election Day, which would make it impossible to vote in jurisdictions which rely on computers for checking in voters with electronic poll books like here in L.A. County, the nation's most populous jurisdictions, just to name one. But there are scores of others all over the country, including, yes, North Carolina and Georgia and Florida and more, who if they were hit by with a ransomware attack on Election Day, pretty much no one would be able to vote. There will be, there would be either no voting at all on November 3rd or everyone would be forced to cast a provisional ballot, though it's unlikely the jurisdictions which use electronic voting systems like North Carolina and Georgia and Pennsylvania, that unlikely that they would have enough handmarked paper ballots available at the polling place to even do that on Election Day. Students in Hartford Public Schools were notified today that both in-person and online classes would not be taking place on Tuesday. Uh, They say they have been informed by Metro Hartford Information Services, our City of Hartford shared services team that manages our network infrastructure, that the ransomware virus caused an outage of critical systems and the restoration of those systems are not yet complete. This includes the system that communicates our transportation routes to our bus company, and it is preventing our ability to operate schools on Tuesday. The superintendent of Hartford Public Schools told NBC Connecticut that they were able to restore the student information system around midnight, but they are still working on the transportation system. The report did not offer information as to whether the district actually paid the ransom requested, the ransom that uh, needed to be paid in order to free up the entirety of their computer networks in the district, or whether they were somehow able to rebuild that network without paying off the hijackers. Is that the right, the right word? I don't even know what to call them. Many jurisdictions have, in fact, had to pay the attackers to restore their systems. The superintendent said she does not believe the personal information of students and staff was compromised. But there will be an investigation. The district has just over 18,000 students and nearly 1,600 teachers. 
and they hope to hold classes on Wednesday, but we will see. Last week, the Miami-Dade County public school system in Florida... Did a chill just run up your spine like it did mine? (laughs) That was uh, in Florida. Last week, uh, they were the target of multiple cyber attacks as they welcomed students back for the first week of school. According to the Miami Herald, the district was hit with 12 cyber attacks last week, some that were local and some from outside the United States. There was a malicious attempt malicious, well-orchestrated, complex attempt at derailing, destroying the connection, which is essential for our students and teachers, according to the superintendent of the Miami-Dade Public Schools. This all happened 12 attacks on the same day on September 2. A 16-year-old student at South Miami Senior High School was arrested on September 3 in connection to the cyber attacks and charged with computer use in an attempt to defraud, which is a third-degree felony. But no, it uh, it does not take. We don't know who those were outside the U.S., but in this case, a 16-year-old student was arrested. It does not take a nation state to pull off any of this. It takes a 16-year-old high school student, apparently. So if you would like to be worried about Russia, that is fine. Please do. But please do worry about everyone else who, yes, can wreak chaos with the brittle computerized electoral systems that we are foolishly once again this year using to help carry out our elections. And one more also related before we get to my guest today to discuss Donald Trump's uh, obscene sliming. Yes, obscene sliming of the nation's military members and veterans of foreign wars and those who have lost their lives or become injured in those fights, describing them as suckers and losers. We will speak with someone from a group who is hopping mad about that today for some odd reason. Anyway, if you think that this Department of Justice and this attorney general is going to somehow keep our elections safe somehow this year, well, think again. Donald Trump's latest fixer and attorney general appears Well, take your pick, either clueless about election fraud or he just doesn't seem to care about it. Uh, doesn't seem to care about lying about it. The Department of Justice admitted late last week that Attorney General Bill Barr's description of a case that he claimed was proof of mass election fraud via mail-in ballots turns out to have been complete BS. During an interview with CNN's uh, Wolf Blitzer last week, Barr defended his and Donald Trump's false claim that voting by mail leads to widespread election fraud by citing a case in Texas led by the Dallas County District Attorney in 2017. Barr told uh, Blitzer, quote, for example, we indicted someone in Texas, 1,700 ballots collected from people who could vote. He made them out and voted for the person he wanted to. Well, that would be bad, wouldn't it? 1,700 stolen votes from uh, someone who took these ballots and filled them out. Well, I'm glad they indicted that guy for that massive election fraud scheme. Though it's odd that I hadn't heard about that one from 2017, given how huge it was, 1,700 ballots. Well, it turns out there's a reason I hadn't heard about that. Andy Chatham, the assistant district attorney in Dallas County who worked on the case, told The Washington Post, quote, that's not what happened at all. 
He says we didn't find any evidence of widespread voter fraud, and instead the ballots that were returned were consistent with the voters' choice, he said. Another top prosecutor who worked on the case, Mike Snipes, told the Post that the office had believed there were potentially 1,700 fraudulent ballots at first, but we did not uncover that at all, he said. Ultimately, they found some guy who had collected 12 ballots from voters, telling them that he would fill them out for them. Twelve, of course, is a far cry from 1,700 ballots. Well, that's because math is hard. Chatham uh, slammed Barr over his claims about the case. The prosecutor said, unfortunately, it speaks volumes to the credibility of Attorney General Bill Barr when he submits half-truths and alternative facts as clear evidence of voter fraud without having so much as even contacted me or the district's attorney's office for an understanding of the events that actually occurred. Chatham told the Post that after Barr said during a heated exchange with Blitzer, quote, this is playing with fire. People have to have confidence in the results of the election and the legitimacy of the government going on to describe the use of absentee ballots as reckless and dangerous. You know what's reckless and dangerous? Telling a whole bunch of people on CNN that there is massive election fraud going on via vote by mail and that 1,700 ballots were defrauded in Dallas, leading to an indictment that did not happen at all. In admitting that Barr was actually wrong about the Dallas case because they had no choice but to admit it, DOJ spokesperson Kerry Kupek told the Post that, quote, prior to his interview, the attorney general was provided a memo prepared within the department that contained an inaccurate summary about the case, which he relied upon when using the case as an example. Sure they did. My guess, he saw some crap on Fox News years ago when they were claiming that this happened, when in fact it didn't happen at all. Uh, and he just repeated it. But, you know, Fox does not do much in regard to clearing up such misreporting, do they? So, no, while fraud, yes, does happen via mail-in voting. And, by the way, more than Democrats give it credit for these days. There was no scheme to defraud 1,700 voters in Dallas in 2017, despite the notion that both Trump and Barr would like to frighten people into believing believing that vote-by-mail is somehow fraudulent as they prepare to challenge, no doubt, millions of absentee ballots that will be cast this year, thanks in no small part to Trump's horrific failure to control the coronavirus in the U.S. But hey, even Fox News could not go along with the White House on Trump's attack on military members and veterans and those who've lost their lives in service to this country. Even Fox has now confirmed that Trump regards America's veterans and war dead as suckers and losers. Will Goodwin of VoteVets.org joins me next, and his group of about half a million current and former military members and their families have a thought or two for our commander-in-chief. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. 
but we need your help to do it. And that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. President Donald Trump launched an unprecedented public attack against the leadership of the U.S. military on Monday, accusing them of waging wars to boost the profits of defense manufacturing companies. I'm not saying the military is in love with me, he said. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy, Trump told reporters during a campaign-style White House news conference on Labor Day. Trump's remarks come after the president has repeatedly touted boosting the defense budget as one of his administration's major accomplishments citing it as evidence of his support for the military, despite the record spending which has benefited the same defense contractors Trump pretended to disparage on Monday. The remarks also come as several defense officials tell CNN that relations between the president and Pentagon leadership are becoming increasingly strained. Can't imagine why. And follow on efforts by Trump to convince the public that he had not made a series of reported disparaging remarks about U.S. military personnel and veterans, which were first reported by The Atlantic magazine's editor in chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, at the beginning of the holiday weekend. His report, which in recent days has rocked D.C. and the military and millions of American veterans and the families of those who fought and died in the service and perhaps even shaken up the election, that report alleges that according to several different unnamed but reportedly top officials in a position to know that Trump referred to those who lost their lives in American wars around the world as, quote, losers, and more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Bellow Wood during World War I in Europe were, quote, suckers for getting killed while in service to their nation, fighting to protect the U.S. and the world from the spread of fascism. He repeatedly disparaged John McCain, who was captured in Vietnam and tortured for years in the Hanoi Hilton, as a, quote, effing loser, though he reportedly didn't say effing, while fighting efforts to lower flags to half-staff after the long-serving senator and former Republican presidential nominee died back in 2018. Trump similarly referred to former President George H.W. Bush as a, quote, loser for being shot down by the Japanese as a Navy pilot in World War II, where he escaped capture. But eight other men who were shot down during the same mission were caught, tortured, and executed by Japanese soldiers, according to Goldberg. And while standing next to the Arlington Cemetery grave of the son of his then Secretary of Homeland Security, later Chief of Staff General John Kelly, whose 29-year-old son Robert was killed in, uh, in 2010 in Afghanistan, Trump turned to Kelly reportedly and said, I don't get it. What was in it for them? 
Kelly has neither confirmed nor denied that story, and the White House has claimed it's all fake news. But one news organization after another has since confirmed virtually the entirety of Goldberg's report with other high-ranking officials serving as sources as well. A former senior administration official confirmed to CNN that Trump referred to fallen U.S. service members at the Ain Marne Cemetery in crude and derogatory uh, terms during a November 2018 trip to France to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. During that visit, according to Goldberg, Trump's scheduled trip with other world leaders to the cemetery was canceled because he feared the rain would mess up his hair. And, quote, in a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. Other outlets now, including Fox News, have confirmed much of The Atlantic's reporting as well, which Trump and the White House vehemently deny. While those comments roiled many over the holiday weekend, the White House has been scrambling to clean up Trump's remarks about military brass and defense contractors on Monday. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows appeared to attempt to walk back Trump's comments during an interview with Fox Business on Tuesday saying the president's accusations against the, quote, top people at the Pentagon were not directly were not directed specifically at people like his own secretary of defense, Mark Esper, or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. While Trump has publicly disparaged the service of several high profile veterans, such as the late Senator John McCain and his former secretary of defense, retired General Jim Mattis, Monday's broadside was on a new level targeting leaders that he appointed to carry out his orders. But if they were meant to distract from the comments reported by Goldberg with the president referring to members of the military and veterans of those Americans who lost their lives in battle as suckers and losers, well, it doesn't seem to have worked. The day after Goldberg's report, VoteVets.org, the largest progressive veterans group in America, founded in 2006 and now representing more than 500,000 vets, families and supporters, released this ad from family members of fallen service members. My stepson was not a loser. My son is not a loser. My son, Matthew, is not a loser. My stepson was not a sucker. Lance Corporal Alexander Scott Arredondo died in Najaf, Iraq in 2004. My son, Sergeant James Anthony Ayub II, gave his life in Kandahar, Afghanistan in 2010. Mi hijo, Jesús Alberto Suarez del Solar, y murió en la guerra de Irak. Honorably serving his country. That is something Donald Trump will never know. That's something that Donald Trump will never understand. My message to Donald Trump is this. You have no right being the commander-in-chief. Usted no conoce lo que es el sacrificio. Featured in that ad from Vote Vets and apparently instrumental in helping to quickly put it together was my friend Karen Meredith, who lost her only son, First Lieutenant Kenneth Ballard, on May 30th, 2004, in Iraq. I first met her in the summer of 2005 at Camp Casey, the weeks-long peace rally in George W. Bush's then-hometown of Crawford, Texas, created in support of Cindy Sheehan's attempt to meet with Bush at the time after she also lost her son in Iraq on the very same day as Ballard. 
I've kept a replica of Ken Ballard's dog tag given to me by Karen Meredith, and it's been hanging on my bedside ever since then by way of reminder to me. Gold Star mothers like Karen Meredith and Cindy Sheehan did not raise losers for children who gave their lives in service to this country. 98-year-old Dan Crowley, who enlisted in the U.S. Navy Air Corps in World War II when he and his unit were captured and forced to do 42 months of brutal manual labor as prisoners of war, is also not a loser. He describes what he lived through as, quote, probably the worst conditions a human being can be put in in yet another ad from the Vote Vets group that was released just this morning. I enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps in World War II. I was on baton. We fought the good fight with what we had, and it wasn't enough. I was a prisoner of war slave laborer for 42 months. We were forced to perform unbelievably brutal manual labor. That was probably one of the worst conditions a human being can be put in. He's not a war hero. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. None of the fellows that I served with who are no longer with us are suckers. They are not losers. Donald Trump disrespects everyone who served in the military. What's worse, he lies about it. We need to vote Donald Trump out of office. And we need to vote out any politicians if they continue to support Donald Trump. That was World War II vet Private Dan Crowley, now 98 years old. There are a lot of vets and families of fallen soldiers who are not happy today with the commander-in-chief who claims to love his military and its veterans. Joining us now is Will Goodwin, Director of Government Relations for VoteVets.org, a West Point graduate himself and a U.S. Army veteran who served on active duty in the Army until a service-connected injury resulted in his honorable discharge. What a loser, eh? Will Goodwin, uh, welcome to the broadcast, sir. And and I mean this, by the way, regarding both your work in the military and at VoteVets.org. Thank you, sir, for your service. Thank you, Brad. It's great to be with you. I'm not even sure where to start here, frankly, Will, uh, as this report, while uh, not actually surprising, was somehow still stunning. Uh, so first, let me just get sort of get your top-line response to both Goldberg's report and both Trump and the White House's denial that any of it ever happened at all. Sure. Well, uh, we don't believe that denial uh, for a moment. And as you said, Brad, this is nothing new from Donald Trump when it comes to his hatred toward uh, the military, towards military families, and towards our veterans. But somehow it's a new low. Uh, no one is is out of reach for Donald Trump when it comes to this topic. That includes uh, the memory of slain Marines, buried at Bella Wood, killed nearly a century ago. And so uh, I think that this report is reminding people of some of the same hate that fueled Donald Trump's primary campaign in 2016, that fueled his general election campaign in 2016 with his attacks against the Khan family uh, and the memory of their son. Uh, but if people take away one piece from this reporting beyond the chaos and, and the horrible language, it should be that Donald Trump now has a record. Uh, four years of failed leadership as commander-in-chief. 
uh, and he has matched these vile words with real tangible harm that has hurt our military, our military families, our veterans, and the readiness of the military. I'm talking about stealing $3.6 billion from military construction projects, mm. uh, from elementary schools and child care centers to build his racist border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm talking about uh, going after 10,000-plus uh, honorably serving transgender uh, men and women in uniform and their families for the sole purpose of appeasing his own uh, political base. Those things have done real harm, uh, and the disrespect is just the cherry on top. Is it those things that you're referring to when you describe him as a failed uh, commander-in-chief? Sure. I mean, not only has Donald Trump... Well, I'll, let's put it in two ways, Brad. Mm -hmm. First, he has failed our men and women in uniform with those examples uh, and many others when it comes to the way that he has treated the rank and file of the U.S. military, the way that he has put people uh, in charge at the Department of Veterans Affairs who have worked to dismantle and privatize that system instead mm -hmm. of caring for veterans, which has resulted in more deaths uh, mm -hmm. amongst the veteran population during their coronavirus pandemic. But when you look at, at our national security posture today and where we are on the world stage, we are alone. Uh, our allies have turned away from us. They do not know how to work with a maniac in the Oval Office like Donald Trump. And our enemies, our adversaries, uh, are emboldened. They're emboldened to continue attacking the very integrity of our democracy and going after our elections infrastructure. And frankly, they have also taken some of those more direct actions, uh, escalating military tensions, the Russians buzzing U.S. Navy ships, uh, intercepting our aircraft. I mean, the continued expansion of the, the Chinese footprint in various places around the world. Other people are uh, meeting their strategic uh, national aims, and the United States is not. As someone who works uh, closely with members of Congress, of course, as the Director of Government Relations at Vote Vets, I know you were a policy advisor to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. You were one of Nancy Pelosi's guests at the State of the Union address this year. What are you hearing uh, from lawmakers, if anything, on, on both the left and um, I'm almost more interested in uh, on the right today as, as members are coming back from their summer recess about uh, this report by Goldberg? Sure. I, I, you know, I think that we have seen uh, from Democrats across the board, including Democrats in uh, seats where Donald Trump may be very popular, standing up once again uh, and speaking the truth uh, on what they know and how disgusting this is. And we're seeing the same failure from Republicans to speak up at all. Uh, Republicans who represent massive uh, military and veteran populations, people like Senator Tom Tillis in North Carolina, mm -hmm. Martha McSally, a veteran herself in Arizona, refusing to condemn the president. And, and here's the thing, I think the American public and your listeners know this at this point, too. We know who Donald Trump is. Donald Trump has shown us his character or lack thereof time and time and time again. And I'm sure we'll talk about how this is going to you know, affect the election. Mm -hmm. But needless to say, people know the record. People know that Donald Trump has attacked veterans when he didn't want them on the streets of New York City outside of his property. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he attacked veterans, frankly, when he uh, uh, lied to get five deferments to send someone else in his place to Vietnam. And at every turn, you know, throughout his, his, his public life, you know, when he did that, he, it wasn't enough for him to just send someone else's son to serve in Vietnam. He had to tell everyone that his personal Vietnam was avoiding STDs in New York City in the 1970s. Uh, 
uh, that is the kind of insult paired with the action that is unforgivable. And I didn't mention it in my intro, uh, but uh, he also uh, did not want wounded veterans to appear in a military parade, I guess, during his inauguration. Uh, you know, and I have to suspect, especially given all of the uh, wounded veterans uh, that we have now that I know that I've mm-hmm. met over the years, that cannot be going over well. But for years, the uh, military, active duty troops specifically, were thought to have been generally supportive of Republican presidential candidates. I had seen some polling uh, suggesting that that may no longer be the case for Donald Trump, though it was. Uh, both before this story came out, and it might have focused more on the officer corps than the enlisted folks. Do you have any information on where those enlisted folks are at this point in advance of the 2020 election and how it, and, and how and if, I guess, this story from the Atlantic may uh, shake things up one way or another for them? Sure, yeah, and I think one of the reasons that the president and his folks are so concerned about this story is uh, about a week or two prior to this Atlantic piece uh, there was a survey not just of the officer corps, but of active duty service members that showed almost 50 percent uh, having an unfavorable or very unfavorable view of Donald Trump. And when asked who they were going to vote for, Joe Biden was leading Donald Trump by uh, somewhere around 41 to 37 percent. Mm. Uh, so things are shifting. And, and, you know, the president in the denial, as you mentioned earlier, has tried to pin this on some type of conspiracy amongst the senior most people which we know is not true from the reporting. We know that the people Donald Trump was insulting were the rank and file, the 18, 19-year-old Marines buried uh, at Bella Wood. Uh, mm-hmm. So the idea that somehow Donald Trump has the support of the rank and file uh, is just not accurate because he hates them. <laughs> he hates them. Uh, yeah. And now they're, they're going to see that in action and word. And, and what what do we make or what should we make or what are the enlisted folks making of, you know, this attack that uh, Donald Trump has had on absentee voting in this country, which goes back to, I believe, the Civil War and is used, you know, absentee and, and overseas voting used quite a bit by the military, you know, an effort to slow down the mail, as we seem to now be seeing from uh, from Louis DeJoy, the new postmaster general would actually seem to harm members of the military, if I'm not mistaken. Is there any uh, thoughts that uh, you have heard or that you might have on on that particular effort? Sure. I mean, the U.S. military has voted by mail going back to the Civil War. It is safe, it works, it is familiar, and it allows the men and women who are risking their lives to defend our democracy by serving in Afghanistan right now to actually participate in that democracy that they are willing to die for. I mean, it's the most fundamental, uh, uh, basic understanding of that bond. But I think Donald Trump and the Republican Party knows that they have to limit who votes to win. And they also have to limit the way people get their information, which is a a story that kind of flew under the radar last week. But Stars and Stripes, uh, which is an independent publication delivered, you know, as a newspaper to uh, people in the most remote forward deployed locations and has done so for decades and decades and decades, was on the chopping block until the president realized he was underwater on this other story and had to had to recant. But they want to limit the truth uh, and the information that gets to our men and women in the field. And now they want to limit their ability to mail their ballots. It is all kind of mind-blowing. And when I saw that story about Stars and Stripes, I thought, what must he be thinking and what must the troops think? I mean, surely they have heard about the effort that was moving forward to, uh, you know, shut down Stars and Stripes entirely. 
I, I, so so much of this just kind of blows my mind. I'm I'm unclear how to even approach it. Uh, it when it comes to his uh, Trump's former chief of staff, his former Department uh, Secretary of uh, Homeland Security, uh, John Kelly, a general himself. According to uh, Goldberg in The Atlantic, while visiting the grave of uh, Kelly's son, who was killed in Afghanistan, Trump said, I don't get it. What was in it for him? Your response to that, but more to the point, Kelly's lack of stepping forward to either confirm or deny that reporting when he could do so. I mean, especially if it was untrue, you would think he would come forward and say that absolutely didn't happen. But he hasn't said a word, has he? No, I'm, I mean, I think it's. Uh, I think with this one, it's important to to do a little bit of dissecting because John Kelly, as a gold star father, has gone through a pain that that you and I and most people listening uh, will never be able to understand. And I think that he gets to decide whether he wants to speak about that private moment at his son's grave as the president. But I would say to him, you, you know, General Kelly, when you took that job as a political appointee uh, to be the White House chief of staff. Your obligation in those other moments, which he absolutely would have familiarity with, uh, in that article is to the American people. It, you know, the families of the 1800 slain Marines uh, buried in France, the caregivers of wounded veterans who want to know if the commander in chief thinks that nobody wants to see them, uh, the families and prisoners of war themselves, the families of those missing in action still, you know, they're hurting too. And John Kelly doesn't get to deny those families. Uh, the truth, and, and frankly, you know, bigger picture, for our democracy to function, voters need to go uh, to the polls or fill out their ballot and mail it in with full information on the man in the Oval Office. Uh, and John Kelly had better respect the American public enough to give them access to the truth so that mm-hmm. they can make that decision uh, this fall uh, or else the system cannot work. Of course, I would like to see him do that as well, but it, it just seems to me that his his lack of response sort of confirms the story. I mean, it would be much easier for sure. him to come out and say, no, that, that didn't happen, that's completely made up. The fact that he's not doing that, if it was in fact made up, there it it makes no sense so i i mean almost his sure. lack of comment uh, seems to me to be a conf- confirmation uh really finally will goodwin uh what what should we make of this effort to disparage i guess the 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 top military brass at the pentagon uh, and defense contractors who by the way i'm happy to disparage myself the the defense contractors in any event but trump doing it at the same time that he's talking about people that he appointed to that roles, and he's been spending the past four years talking about how much new funding that he has been able to obtain, much of which goes to, yes, those very defense contractors that now he's pretending to not like. Sure. I, well, let's, I mean, let's be very clear. Donald Trump is in a deflect, flip-flop, uh, squirm-out-of-this-mode where he will say, whatever he thinks helps him in the moment, even if it is completely illogical, and, and that's what's happening in this case. The Secretary of Defense right now was the head lobbyist for Raytheon, one of the largest defense contractors in the country, for seven years. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's choice. Yep. By the way, his third choice, because General Mattis resigned in protest, and because he tried to nominate someone who couldn't pass an FBI background check the second time, you know, usually it takes three or four times to get the fifth string guy confirmed or gal uh, in this administration, although they, they don't seem to see the value in appointing women uh, or minorities to, to senior roles, which is a problem as well. Uh, but you're right. I mean, this is a bigger problem. Uh, uh, when Donald Trump brags about 
you know, raising troop pay. He's bragging about agreeing to a congressional authorization to increase pay to keep pace with inflation that happens literally every year. Uh, these other dollar amounts uh, of, of new cash going to the Pentagon are not going to personnel and their families. Uh, they are going to platforms to build more weapons. So, you know, Donald Trump uh, trying to claim that he is somehow uh, a crusader against defense spending or that he is up against the in, uh, defense industrial complex is just not true because he put the defense industrial complex in charge as the secretary of defense. Bottom line, Will, before I let you go, uh, will this sure. uh, will this report uh, change the equation here for uh, for vets, for members of the military as far as how they see Donald Trump? Could this be an actual game changer, so to speak, or is this just uh, more noise amongst so much uh, from this particular administration? Well, I think it should be. I think it should be, Brad, because this is, you know, we have the starkest contrast you could imagine in this election, and that's those are borne out by the facts. It's borne out by, uh, you know, the way that our two candidates, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, talk publicly. And so when it comes to this question of the commander-in-chief test, we really have the contrast in chief this year. Uh, and, and just look back at their respective lives. I mean, while Donald Trump was palling around with Jeffrey Epstein and filming The Apprentice, Joe Biden was in the U.S. Senate leading the fight to increase funding for up-armored vehicles that saved thousands of American lives and limbs uh, in combat. And when Donald Trump was stoking birtherism and having his affair with Stormy Daniels, Joe Biden was in Iraq as vice president visiting his own deployed son. And while Donald Trump thinks that Americans who choose to serve are suckers and losers, Joe Biden thinks that they represent the best of us and has said that uh, in word and matched it indeed his entire career. So I hope that this just crystallizes the case uh, for folks as they go in to vote this year, and as people are talking to their friends and neighbors about the choice uh, in this election, they should remind people uh, where the facts lie uh, and what that contrast is. Oh, facts. How quaint. Will, <laughs> Will, Will Goodwin is the director of government relations for VoteVets.org, where uh, you can uh, check them out and all of their videos and, and other uh, helpful material for veterans and, uh, and, and their families. Uh, they are the largest progressive veterans group in America. They now represent more than 500,000 vets and families and uh, supporters. You can find them at VoteVets.org and on the Twitters at VoteVets. Will Goodwin, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you don't mind if we call on you again in the future, sir. I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Brad. Thanks, Will. All right, a quick break, and we will come back with a... Um a sad story, I'm sorry to say. Uh, it appears that we, uh, the progressive movement, uh, and uh, yes, the Bradcast has lost one of our own. That story is next, right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the 
Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Peace activist, lawyer, writer, and longtime friend of this show, of the Brad Blog, and of progressive peace lovers everywhere, Kevin Zeese died over the weekend at the age of 64. As Democracy Now! notes today, Kevin was deeply involved in many anti-imperialist and anti-corporate movements, including the fight for universal health care and Occupy Wall Street. In 2019, he was part of a group of activists who occupied the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. to prevent it uh, being taken over by Venezuela's U.S.-backed opposition, where they encamped for more than a month in 2019. Kevin ran the website Popular Resistance and the podcast Clearing the Fog with his partner, Dr. Margaret Flowers, who also appeared on this program in years past uh, to push for universal single-payer health care as the fight over the Affordable Care Act took place during the Obama administration. Kevin was a repeat guest here over many, many years, and he was just a great person a great activist, a great lawyer, willing to file lawsuits where others were afraid to do so. Another great peace activist, friend, and guest over the years here, David Swanson of Roots Action, described Kevin as irreplaceable. David writes that Kevin was a major, constant, reliable presence in the movement for peace and justice. He organized events, protests, occupations. He risked arrests. He ran for office. He was an attorney and used the courts and shared his expertise. He thought independently, writes David. He acted collaboratively. He maintained good relations with those he disagreed with, even those he disagreed with over that most disagreeable of topics in the collapsing oligarchy elections. Kevin and his partner in recent years, Margaret Flowers, combined art, civil resistance, music, journalism, radio, and coalition building to cross issues and energize. Uh, Losing Kevin, uh, writes Swanson, is a horrible blow, but nobody can say he didn't put his time to good use. Nobody can say that if thousands followed Kevin's lead, we wouldn't have a world transformed. Nobody can say that he didn't make a major difference exposing injustice and changing public policy and culture for the better. Kevin was part of protecting an embassy against a coup, occupying Washington, D.C., legalizing drugs, opposing NATO, meeting with the U.S. Institute of Peace to ask them to support peace, rallying in support of numerous whistleblowers, speaking out powerfully for countless causes. Kevin was an environmentalist, an anti-racist, a socialist, a war abolitionist, a poverty abolitionist. He took on the plutocrats, the lobbyists, the Chamber of Commerce, the weapons dealers, the politicians, and the pundits fairly and fearlessly. He did indeed. His partner, Dr. Flowers, wrote at Common Dreams on Monday that Kevin was working up until the end and died in his sleep of a uh, possible heart attack, noting that he fought to bring truth every day and urging that we must not lose this struggle. She concludes with, rest in power, Kevin Zeese. We share that sentiment, and it uh, frankly feels like another soldier is down. And yet, his fight, our fight, will continue. My thanks to my guest today, Will Goodwin of VoteVets.org, to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast or any other, Download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who click on that donate button 
at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.